Let's take our Bibles this morning and go to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, I wish you beg my pardon this morning by having trouble with my collar. So I typically wear a tie. I always like to wear a tie on Sunday mornings. But uh, this may be the first time in 26 years you see me preach tieless. I don't know. But uh, don't let it be a distraction. Um, I, uh, it is what it is. All right, Romans 14. Uh, the celebration of service for the whole family, the fun part, is next Sunday night. I know your insert may have had two different dates on it, but it is going to be next Sunday evening. Join us at 5 o'clock. Um, uh, so we appreciate, uh, appreciate your patience with the typo there. Some have the right date, some don't. Uh, so, and I, can I just tell you, I really appreciate you conscientious saints who text me uh, to let me know and keep me aware of all these neat details. Um, because then I can let everyone, let the whole family know. So I'll keep sending the texts. I appreciate your conscientiousness uh, to be sure. Uh, we're going to begin Romans 14. What I'd like to do is read the first uh, few verses here together and then um, start with an illustration that might uh, seem a bit unique a little, and a bit different but, and a bit longer than a normal opening illustration, but just hang with me, all right? Um, so Amy, are you only here this Sunday? Are you going to leave? Are you going to come back someday? Praise God. Good. All right. We're praying for you. Amy's going to Oregon. Amy Hart, she got a job out there back in her dad's stomping grounds. And uh, so we're praying for you. I have been praying for you. And um, I hope we can keep in touch while you're out there. All right. Let's, let's read Romans 14. Uh, and let's read here through verse 12. Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. That's not a cut on vegetarians, so just hang with me on here, all right? The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, 
and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. I really appreciate the special worship song preparing our hearts for this sermon because we gladly live beneath the cross of Christ. All that we, we do together as individuals and corporately, corporately as a body, we do not for ourselves, but unto the Lord. Amen? Amen? And really that's what this context is about, both in Romans chapter 14 and verse 15. So as we continue on this morning, let's pretend we're in the sub-zero temperatures of the month of January. We've had a few days of being shut up in the house. Our kids have been enjoying some local school calamity days, and everyone's enjoyed their time together, but it's getting a bit restless around the home. And some gracious soul in the church who has the ability calls every family in the church personally and says, I'm paying for the whole family at Grace to fly to Florida for 10 days. <laughs> to give us all a break from this bitter cold, I've chartered several planes with United Airlines and we leave Cleveland Hopkins tomorrow at 6 p.m. I hope you can rearrange your schedules to go. I have a ticket for you and for your family, so please join us. Everyone gathers at the airport. In airports, there's always lots of people involved, right? From the ticket counter, to the security lines, to security pat-downs, to luggage checks, you name it. People will always be people when you fly. You may get, your get to your favorite coffee place and there may be 30 church family members ahead of you, ordering, waiting for their lattes. So you get on your phone and why wait in line? I'll order from my phone and I'm gonna beat them all and pick up my beverage over on the side. You get to the boarding area of your aircraft and there may not be a section of seats for you and or your whole family, so you have to split up. While it's not totally desirable, it works. Hey, we're going to Florida for free for 10 days. Behind you, another church family member is on the edge of tears describing the horrible week that they had with their boss and how they're on the verge of potentially quitting and finding a new job because they just couldn't fathom going to work for another week for that horrible person. Across from you, a mom decides to make the floor in front of her a changing table for her baby. Doesn't she know that's gonna smell? You say to yourself, if I get up and leave, do you think she'll notice? Is that rude? Besides you, a kid from the youth group is his earbuds and his phone. He's so absorbed with all the social media, he laughs, he maybe even yells, he, he snickers, he interacts with 300 different people at one time. Doesn't he realize that there's people from the church that are physically around him? Is he that absorbed with 300 people on his phone and acts like we aren't even present? Well, it's time to board. We're flying Southwest Airlines, even though I said United. We're flying Southwest Airlines. <laughs> they check two free bags per person and allow two carry-ons. The dude that bought us all the tickets was really thinking ahead. Good for him. And by the way, free snacks too. 
your ticket has a number on it from 1 to 150. You're number 49. Southwest, if you've flown it, you know they, they board by number. And maybe you'll get the seat that you want after all. You line up next to the proper post with your number on it. You notice the ticket number of the person in front of you, and it says 85. He's got a wife and seven children. Their numbers are 86 to 93. Wait, there's nine people who are out of line. They're going to get my aisle seat. You want to say something? Ugh, they're church people. Man, those people are faithful. So sweet when I see them at church. And they're always there, like every service. You know what? And I bet they tithe too. <laughs> they're always faithful, serving too, not just coming to services. Mercy, I'll just let them go. Maybe the ticket agent will catch their mistake. If not, it's only a two-hour flight to Orlando. It's no big deal. Someone behind you gets bumped by two sisters fooling around behind them. They bump you. Your coffee spills all over your brand new white shoes you bought for the warmer weather. You turn to scold the kids for fooling around, and you see, too, that they're some of the most faithful students in the Sunday school class that you teach. Ready to explode on them and ask their parents for payment for your shoes, you silence yourself and grit your teeth and smile at the same time. Someone from the other side of the post slips you Four $20 bills, notices your shoes are ruined, and they would like to pay for new ones. His wife says, you know what? What kind of coffee do you drink? I notice you just lost yours. And you say, well, just black. It's morning. I just need my coffee as strong as it can possibly be. She says, well, I just drink black coffee too, and I haven't even taken a sip of mine. Why don't you, why don't you have mine? And her husband says, you know what? Uh, let me carry your, your largest carry-on bag too. You know that one that's on your shoulder and I want to help you out. The line is moving. The husband's paid. The, loves, hus the husband's helped. The wife's given the coffee. And my goodness, you're even able to carry your coffee now without having to fear that big bag slipping off your shoulder and jarring that coffee loose from your hands. The ticket lady, she doesn't even go to our church. She's so nice. Like she's not getting paid to be nice. She's like just really nice. I wonder if anyone has given her a piece of gospel literature or thanked her for her happy smile. I'm not going to assume that someone has, so I will. You board the plane. Your aisle seat's gone. The bulkhead seats are gone. Your plan C seats are also gone. There's only the dreaded middle seat in almost every aisle on the plane. And you're not the smallest person in the world either. The youth pastor notices your situation. He's on an aisle seat next to his wife and would like to exchange his seat for your middle seat. Well, now you get to sit next to Sharla and the new baby. And Stella's at the window seat, who's already enamored with what's outside the window. That was so nice of Pastor Steve. Wait, I wanted to sleep on the way down. I've got a fellowship with Charlotte now. And the girls. It's going to be noisy. I guess that's okay. 
I've wanted to get to know her better anyway. I'll just sleep in a little bit tomorrow. The flight commences. I hear all around me what sounds like the lobby of our church on Sunday morning. People are fellowshipping at a feverish pitch. I'm not going to sleep anyway. Ben Richards stands at the front of the plane about an hour into the flight (laughs) and begins to sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The whole choir he arranged to be on our plane, they, they planned this flash mob. It sounds beautiful. They sing a, a stanza of the hymn, and then the whole plane joins the choir for the remaining verses. The hymn singing continues for the next hour of the flight. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And apparently we're all rehearsing for that grand day in the sky. We deplane. The flight attendants haven't been to church ever in their lives, but they went to church on this flight. They were amazed by everyone's loving consideration and unity. They asked, what is this? And you have the chance to tell them, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by how you love one another. This is Jesus at work in our hearts. We have our bumps and our bruises. We have our flaws. But because he loved us, we really love each other and we try to be as patient with each other as possible. And he keeps us together and keeps us growing. She says, well, I've been a flight attendant for over 20 years. My crew is newer, but we're all unchurched. And we were talking throughout the flight how we've never seen such loving, considerate, and unified people in our lives. And You have the opportunity to demonstrate to her a gracious smile and you say, it's just all by God's grace. Here's a little information on our Jesus and on the bottom of the information is my cell phone number. Would you call me sometime or we can FaceTime and and I'll be glad to share with you what Jesus has has done in my life. Everyone deboards the plane, goes on and enjoys the trip and has left a standing impression with a flight crew of what loving, unified, considerate souls look like and what they do. Romans chapter 14 and 15, folks, is really a description of what loving, unified souls who are considerate look like and what they do. I want to break down this chapter into four sections. Would you write these four sections down? We're going to get through the first today. First of all, I would like to consider the people. The people that Paul describes here. And I would just call them the people of consideration. In verses 2 and 5, we're going to have our second point in the text. And There are some potential pitfalls of considerate people. The people of considerate, consideration, the the potential pitfalls. Verses 6 to 12, which we'll certainly get to next week, we're going to call that the principles of consideration. The principles of consideration. And then verses 13 to 23, 
we're going to give some practical exhortations to spirit-filled, considerate people. The people of consideration, the pitfalls to consideration, the principles, and the practical exhortations. So this morning, we continue on with the people of consideration. I want you to look with me at verse 1 of chapter 14 and then verse 1 of chapter 15. We're going to see Paul volleying these two groups of people back and forth through both chapters. Chapter 14 and verse 1 says, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith. And by the way, in your own time, maybe this week, over the next couple weeks, go through the chapters here and underline the word faith. Uh, It's critical for our understanding that both these groups are certainly born-again people. And that really is the pinnacle of truth that we need to understand. These people have been imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is forever immutable. It's unchanging in their lives. We have the weak in the faith. And the strong in the faith are told to accept those who are weak. Look at chapter 15 and verse 1. Now, we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. So we have the weak and we have the strong. These are the people that are asked by the Spirit of God to be or remain considerate of one another. We're going to have to define these two groups and who they are and why they're called strong and weak. Before we do this, we must understand that chapter 14 is the continuation of all that we've seen and understood in chapters 12 and 13. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is the foundation of the function for the local church anywhere that it exists, to the individual. And that foundation leads to proper activity in the church, which is governed by holy, relational, passionate, and commissional love. That love knows how to support human government and live the moral and ethical demands of holy love before men and women and children who need Christ. And the last verse of chapter 13 repeats for us the heartbeat of chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2 where we're told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, keep being transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and and make sure that you're not giving any occasion to your flesh. We discussed that last week. The relentless appropriation of Christ in our lives will compel us to live with integrity, both with God's people and with those in our community who need the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's focus, though, in chapters 14 and 15, turns to the health of the church, and for a moment or two here, off what Paul has been describing at the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13, which is somewhat of a commissional, outside the church view, as we live this moral and ethical love before the lost. So we're going to be considering together how the church maintenances this particular aspect of its spiritual health by understanding what it means to remain considerate of two groups of people, whichever one you fall in, who are in the faith. We're in the faith. Rome is a healthy church. Paul has never, never visited her. We know that. He has a tremendous interest in this church for a number of reasons. 
but they're facing something for the first time that could be disruptive in their midst if they're not careful. I believe the information Paul will share here is intended to be preventative of any larger issues. It is not uncommon for hungry, newer believers to come to various impasses as they grow and disciple together. When those potential conflicts arise and they are addressed promptly and efficiently, healthy churches will continue on their normative patterns of fellowship, worship, and discipleship. Make no mistake, though, what Paul is going to address here is not of any insignificance. But God's grace, coupled with his word, can and will always be fire preventative to any group that has a pattern of healthy growth. I really believe that that we're like, in our nature, the church of Rome at this time. I believe, as I told you in weeks previous, I believe we're healthy. We love to worship. We love to mentor each other. We love to grow deeper in the Word of God and widen our influence and reaching those in our community who need Christ. And, and uh, so I really believe this, this context is going to become to us what it became to Rome years and years ago. So Paul's desire is that both the strong and the weak recognize a few things together. And it would be important for us to notice and maybe write down these things. These assumptions, if you will. First of all, as we've already stated, both groups are in Christ and are relentlessly appropriating him individually. Individually. He asks both groups to be considerate of one another. The goal for both is to keep focused on what Paul has given them doctrinally in chapters 1 through 11 in a balanced and in a unified way. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the content of the gospel. Because if we're going to forget chapters 1 through 11 and their content, then the strong will rule over the weak or the weak will rule over the strong. Really, the anchor to non-preferential, considerate, spirit-filled living is understanding and holding strongly to the content of the gospel in chapters 1 through 11. Paul also assumes that if they're living practically those first two chapters of the content of the gospel in chapters 12 and 13 that they are going to respond favorably to chapters 14 and 15. We have to remember this all the time. You've heard us say it a number of times. We like to repeat it as often as we can. Most New Testament writers wrote assuming that the people that they wrote to were born again and ready to be fed the Word of God. As a matter of fact, outside the church of Corinth, which was... Paul giving it a lot of what we call prescriptive material. They were a unique church in a unique time of trouble. Outside that church, the writers of Scripture are writing letters and their recipients are people that are passionate about walking with God and and they're hungry. They, They know they're not perfect and so they take the imperatives right? They take the commands, they take the writings, and, and they correct where ne- corrections needed, but they're hungry. And I really believe this is where 
Rome is. So as we continue on to understand the people of consideration here, the strong and the weak, let's talk a little bit about here who the weak are. Who are the weak? Well, as we've already said, they're saved individuals who are easily tempted to go back and hold on to religious traditionalism as compared to the free gospel of Christ that's been outlined in chapters 1 through 11. So in other words, the weak in this context, Paul teaches us, are the people that have probably been saved the longest. Let that kind of sink in a little bit. In this context, they're probably the group in the church of Rome who is smallest in number though. They've been saved the longest, but they're smallest in number. And Paul calls them weak because their tendency is, because they were reared in religious traditionalism and they were saved early in it. And they lived as a saved person in Jewish mosaic religious traditionalism that once they're saved, it's hard for them to cut the cord with some things in that former religious past. And because it's hard for them to cut the cord and freely, confidently accept just the gospel that's changed them, Paul calls them weak. Paul calls them weak. So, there are probably people that from time to time have begun to question in their minds the confidence that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation right, to them who are in Christ. In other words, they may say, I believe I'm saved, but what about various aspects of the ceremonial law that, that we used to participate in? And what about various aspects of the varying aspects of the civic mosaic code. And man, we lived in those so faithfully. How, how could they just be over just like that? These were, these were things that God gave to us. This was in his law. And they're just over. The weak in this context would have been, as I've already stated, formerly religious Jews who have considered themselves good Jews. The weak would have been careful folks who would have not been able, as one author said, to grasp the fact that salvation is apart from every work of the law. And when he enters into Christ, he's confident to leave legalism and ceremonialism and all other isms behind and, and grasp that which is free. In our culture, there are still those who forbid themselves meat in a religious way at certain times of the year. Others won't eat pork because it's deemed to be unclean. There are Jews still here to, still in our culture and even in our area who may be saved, but still adhere to dietary requirements of the Mosaic Code because they're convinced that they should. Others do it just because they believe it to be more healthy and not anymore a religious conviction, but they're still hanging on to those things. Some folks have preferences that are religiously dear to their hearts. They may have come to their conclusions outside of a solid discipleship or Bible teaching environment. They're saved. They may have been saved for a long time, 
But in that context, they may be slow growers, struggling at times with maintaining the balance of learning their preferences are not biblical, but still growing in Christ's likeness. But to be clear, they're still growing. They're still growing. They have a tendency to be stuck on their preferences, but they fight past that as a slow grower. They're, 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 they're still growing. Cross-reference here in the margin of your Bible if you want. Next to chapter 14 and verse 1, Colossians chapter 2. Just read that chapter sometime. I believe Paul is speaking to faithful people there in the small church of Colossae who have been somewhat persuaded by what we call religious Jews, Judaizers, to again pick up aspects of the Mosaic law. And, and he, he, remor- he reminds them of the sufficiency and superiority of Christ and Christ alone in that context as well. And that might be helpful to, to look at another congregation that was healthy, maybe struggling with the same thing. So who are the strong? Who are the strong? The strong would have been the Gentile, the non-religious Jew in this context. And the strongest would have been the folks that have been probably saved the least amount of time. They were largest in number and probably saved the least amount of time. They would have been born again out of pagan idolatry. And hang on with me here as we describe the strong because it's fascinating here why Paul calls them strong. They would have fully known that their whole pagan past was of the devil and nothing of God and would have readily put it behind them, not being even tempted for a moment to go back and pick it up again. It was all developed and enveloped in a a system of secular darkness. No, (laughs) I'm a child of the light now. No, different than the weak who were raised under Mosaism. They would have been more ready and confident to grasp the truth without wavering of the gospel in chapters 1 through 11. They live knowing that justification is completely apart from works, and they're so glad. (laughs) They realize that liberty, as one author said, in Christ, that he's given us, has freed us from the rules of legalism and even the ceremonialism of our former pagan religious pasts, and they're forever done with it. So you can see why the weak would have been tempted to stay weak. Because before their salvation, and even after their salvation, the whole Mosaic system would have come from the Lord. They would have been reared that the whole book of the law should never depart out of their mouth, and they were commanded to meditate in it day and night. The whole book of the law. They would have remembered what David said in Psalm 19 19 in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, and it transforms the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It makes the naive spiritually wise. The Torah of Yahweh, the law of the Lord, the first five books of the Old Testament was enough, had enough Jesus in those those books for someone to be saved. And they knew that law. They knew the Christ. 
that law was to picture. And it was holy to them. It was holy to them. They were taught that in order to worship with integrity, they would have to be mosaically pure, in a ceremonial way, adhering to all those moral aspects of the law, including the innumerable civic aspects as well. It would be understandable in this time to see why some had tendencies to adhere again to what they had put behind them when they were first saved. As a matter of fact, if you want to cross-reference here too in a little bit different kind of context, in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, the Galatian people had not just been tempted to give themselves back over partially to Mosaism. Some had been tempted. And it had embraced again one particular aspect of the Mosaic law that says this work is necessary for us to be saved. And you know, Paul writes to them a little bit differently than he does Colossians, the Colossian church. And he says, you know what? If anyone comes to you and they have, and they preach that Jesus Christ is not enough and they want to add works to him, let him be anathema, let him be accursed, right? That's a cursed gospel. Well, these people would have not been, again, to that extreme, but, but nonetheless, the dangers are there. And Paul's trying to be, give a little preemptive letter here, if you will, to protect them, to protect them. So you might ask the question, which group is right? Which group is right? That's a natural question when we read a text that's familiar to us like this. Doctrinally, Paul would say, the strong for sure, because they have more completely grasped freedom in Christ alone. But let's be careful. Paul is not seeking to throw any believer in this context under the bus. He isn't really labeling them as strong or weak just for the mere purpose of description. Paul doesn't label just to label. He's reminding us that there is room and will always be room for both groups in the church, even though there's weaknesses in both groups. There's a higher goal for both groups that we'll investigate in the moments, in the weeks ahead. He expects both groups to continue what they are doing, continue to grow in wisdom and in knowledge, continue to be considerate of the positional righteousness you have in each other in Jesus Christ. We're gonna, he's going to highlight that over and over in these two chapters. So yeah, there's going to be strong and the weak in the church all the time. The focus is never to be just on the strong or on the weak, or who's right or who's wrong. The focus is when you look at someone that you, if you're strong and you look at someone that's weak, don't look at them as weak. See Jesus in them. Amen. When you look over their shoulders, see Christ. Don't see them. And are, ask yourself a question. Are they growing? Do they need help? And they're grown. And then the reality of the strong and weak always being in the church kind of takes a back seat 
And what takes a front sheet becomes windshield material for all of us is, who's in Jesus? And are they growing? And what can I do to help them grow? Desires to be loving and patient with both groups who have their strengths and probably have their weaknesses. The chapter unfolds in amazing beauty, that principle of consideration and contract for preserving the harmony and perpetuating Christian fellowship. And when Paul writes, he assumes a positive and plausible response. And what a blessing that is. But I want to conclude this morning by going back to one verse, the last verse of chapter 13, and I want to leave something on your minds and your hearts for next Sunday morning. I really believe here, and the more I studied, prayed, thought about this verse, it's not only really an appropriate conclusion of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, but I believe it's an appropriate introduction to chapter 14 and 15. Hang on with me here as we close. Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. I personally believe that the first phrase is directed to the weak that are discussed in chapters 14 and 15. And I really believe the second phrase is an introductory approach to the strong. What do the weak who sometimes waver in their confidence in the gospel because of their religious preferences of the past, what do they need to constantly do? And these are present active imperatives. Remember last week? These are commands. These aren't options. They need to relentlessly appropriate Christ in their minds and in their hearts. Apart from my religious past, I have been saved by grace through Christ, by faith alone. Apart from my religious works, apart from my religious preferences, I have been imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I am going to put him on. Relentlessly so. I'm complete in him, apart from my religious self. Put him on if you're weak. But to those of you who are strong, those of you who may have been saved for less amount of a time, but you have no religious past, and you are easy to con and confident to, to grasp salvation in Christ alone, your greatest strength can also be your greatest weakness. When you're that confident, you have a tendency possibly to dabble around with things of the flesh because you know you're secure. And to you, Paul says... Be careful. If you're confident, you're strong, praise God for that. But make sure you're not providing any occasion for your flesh. Both groups together. Let's learn together and let's put on display to others who may be here this morning that may not know us well and, and in the community that unchurched like you did for the flight crew at the beginning of the sermon what a unified 
loving, considerate church looks like as we remain focused on Jesus and him alone. Let's pray together.